Hello, and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East soccer, or Middle East soccer podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. Saudi and Emirati efforts to define moderate Islam as socially more liberal while being subservient to an autocratic ruler is as much an endeavor to ensure regime survival and bolster aspirations to leave the Muslim world as it is an attempt to fend off challenges rooted in diverse strands of religious ultra-conservatism. The Saudi and Emirati efforts to garner religious soft power have much in common. Even though the Kingdom and the United Arab Emirates build their respective campaigns on historically different forms of Islam. The two Gulf states are moreover rivals in the battle for the soul of Islam, a struggle to define what strand or strands will dominate the faith in the 21st century. The battle takes on added significance at a time that Middle Eastern rivals are attempting to dial down regional tensions by managing their disputes and conflicts rather than resolving them. The efforts put a greater emphasis on soft power rivalry rather than hard power confrontation, often involving proxies. Saudi Arabia and the UAE propagate a moderate Islam on the back of significant social reforms in recent years that preaches absolute obedience to the ruler and relegates the clergy to the status of the ruler's clerics. The reforms include Saudi Arabia's lifting of a ban on women's driving, enhancing of women's professional and personal opportunities, curbing the powers of the religious police, and introducing Western-style entertainment. The UAE last November allowed unmarried couples to cohabitate, loosened alcohol restrictions, and criminalized honor killings, a widely criticized religiously packaged tribal custom that allows a male relative to kill a woman accused of dishonoring her family. Saudi Arabia and the UAE compete in the Muslim world with Turkish and Iranian Islamist strands of the faith that are laced with nationalism. The Gulf states' state-led moderation of religious practices rather than of theology and Muslim jurisprudence is also challenged by some strands of Wahhabism, the ultra-conservative trend of Islam on the basis of which Saudi Arabia was founded. Wahhabism has refracted into three broad groups since the early 1990s. A left, that has developed a discourse of civic rights. A center, occupying official posts of state, dubbed ulama al-sultan, or the ruler's clerics, that has put up some resistance to the loosening of their powers in the social, juridical, and media spheres and a Wahhabi right, sympathetic to the jihadist discourse of Al-Qaeda and its focus on questions of foreign policy, said scholar Andrew Hammond. While Turkey and Iran pose a geopolitical danger, autocratic monarchical rule is more fundamentally threatened by the religious challenge posed by what Mr. Hammond dubs the Wahhabi left and the Wahhabi right, as well as Indonesia's Nahdlatul Ulama the only non-state player in the battle for the soul of Islam that advocates and practices reform of Islamic jurisprudence and unconditionally endorses the Universal Declaration of Human Rights.
The arrests in recent years of Saudi scholars and preachers, such as Safa al-Hawali, Salman al-Awda, Suleiman al-Duwaysh, Ibrahim al-Sakran, and Hassan al-Maliki, suggests as much. Implicitly drawing a distinction with Nadatul Ulama, Mr. Hammond argues that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's reforms amount to defanging Wahhabism, not dethroning it. The Crown Prince, since coming to office, has radically cut back on the investment of tens of billions of dollars in the propagation of religious ultra-conservatism across the globe, most effectively in Pakistan and Afghanistan. He has also sought to balance Wahhabism with Saudi ultra-nationalism and shave off the rough social edges of the kingdom's austere interpretation of the faith his subjugation of the clergy, and incarceration of adherents of the Wahhabi left and far right, put an end to 73-year-long power-sharing agreement between the ruling al-Saud family and the clergy. The left has entertained concepts of a constitutional, rather than an absolute monarchy, called for political liberalization and civil rights, and in some cases endorsed the 2011 popular Arab revolts that toppled four Arab autocrats. The Wahhabi left could be joined in challenging the conservative Gulf monarchies and simultaneously be challenged by Nahadatul Ulama once the group expands its activities to target the Muslim world's grassroots beyond Indonesia, the world's most populous Muslim-majority country, as well as its foremost democracy. In its first outreach to grassroots elsewhere, Nadatul Ulama is expected to launch an Arabic language website before the end of the year that would target the Arab world. Nadatul Ulama's concept of a humanitarian Islam that embraces principles of tolerance, pluralism, gender equality, secularism, and human rights, as defined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, goes considerably further than proposals put forward by Mr. Hammond's Wahhabi left perhaps better described as more liberal rather than an ideological left wing of a fundamentally ultra-conservative movement. The Indonesian group's concept of Islam also contrasts starkly with the Saudi and Emirati notion of autocratic religious moderation that involves no theological or jurisprudential reform, but uses the ruler's clergy to religiously legitimize repressive rule under which protests, political parties, and petitioning of the government are banned and thought is policed. The state has strengthened the Wahhabi center through neutralizing the Wahhabi left and right, which have each represented a threat to state authority and legitimacy. As for the civic rights innovations of the Wahhabi left, exemplified by Al-Auda, it is precisely this discourse that the state wants to shut down, Mr. Hammond said referring to the imprisoned, imprisoned cleric. The track record of proponents of autocratic religious moderation is checkered at best. While the UAE has created a society that is by and large religiously tolerant, neither Saudi Arabia nor Egypt, which doesn't have the wherewithal to fight a soft power battle in the Muslim world, but seeks to project itself as a champion of religious tolerance, can make a similar claim. Prince Mohammed has met Jewish and evangelical leaders. Mohammed Alisa 
the head of the Muslim World League, long a major vehicle to promote Saudi religious ultra-conservatism, doesn't miss an opportunity these days to express his solidarity with other faith groups. Yet, non-Muslims remain barred in the kingdom from worshipping publicly or building their own houses of worship. In Egypt, Patrick George Zaki, a 27-year-old student, lingers in prison since February 2020 on charges of spreading false news and rumors for publishing an article documenting incidents of discrimination against Egypt's Coptic Christian minority. Mr. Zaki was arrested a year after Ahmed Al-Tayyib, the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, Egypt's citadel of Islamic learning, signed a declaration of human fraternity for world peace and living together with Pope Francis during the two men's visit to the UAE. The declaration advocates religious freedom and pluralism. By contrast, Nadatul Ulama, Secretary General Yahya Stakouf, recently told the story of Rianto in a September 11th speech at Regent University, a bulwark of American evangelical anti-Muslim sentiment, founded by televangelist Pat Robertson. A member of Nadatul Ulama's militia, Rianto died guarding a church in Java on Christmas Eve when a bomb exploded in his arms as he removed it from a pew. To us in Nadatul Ulama, Rianto is a martyr, and we honor his memory every Christmas Eve alongside millions of our Indonesian Christian brothers and sisters, Mr. Stakouf said. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. A written version of this podcast is on my blog, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer, at mideastsoccer.blogspot.com. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. All the best and take care.